A brief warning to our listeners. The following episode contains discussion of human trafficking. Listener discretion is advised. Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different. Different. This is NOCO FM. Trafficking is the second fastest growing criminal industry in the world, trailing the drug industry. It has an estimated annual revenue of $42.5 billion. America is the number one consumer of human trafficking. This is due to the national and international consumption of commercialized sex and pornography. Rescue One Global started as a simple awareness and action campaign seeking to expose and combat all slavery and is a standalone, full-fledged prevention rescue and restoration mission and force in the anti-trafficking world. Under the direction of founders Daniel and Lacey Tolar, Rescue One Global currently serves on a daily basis over 180 children and dozens of women in Southeast Asia in seven locations, as well as women and children from multiple states here in the United States. So I'm excited to have Lacey Tolar here with me today from Rescue One Global. Rescue One Global is really close to my heart. I had an opportunity to help serve and raise funds to benefit Rescue One Global and all that they do. So I'm really excited because I met Lacey through this these efforts and I'm just amazed at what she and her husband Daniel do. And I wanted to have her come on and just kind of share more about what Rescue One Global is, and just some of the facts and some of the things that other people need to know about human trafficking. So Lacey, thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. So tell my listeners, you know, let's start just by who you are, who you and Daniel are, and what sparked your interest. I know you have this great story around how Rescue One Global started. So I would love for you to share that story. Well, the short story is that um, in 2007, um, we really felt like God asked us to make a big faith leap and to um, kind of sell everything we had and just move to the other side of the world. But at that point in time, human trafficking wasn't on our radar. And after we'd only been in the country for a few months, our then we, we went overseas with four kids, birthed our fifth child in the country of Thailand. But while we were there, our then nine-year-old daughter was almost abducted and trafficked. And that's when trafficking kind of left us being a word out there in our vocabulary somewhere to being really um, confronted right to our face. Um, What is trafficking? How can we protect our children? You know, everything that all of us parents want to do. And then after we began to do research and study and understand, man, this is a big problem. The next step was, okay, who's doing something about it? And we couldn't find that many people 11 years ago that were fighting this fight and really wanting to step into this battle because it's a really dark and hard emotionally, mentally, physically um, battle to be a part of. And really, we were fighting for the life of our own child at first. Yeah. yeah, Sorry, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm really, you know, um, curious as to like what, whatever you want to share, what happened with your nine-year-old and like walk me through the emotions of being a parent and being in another country and just what your feelings were at the time. Early on in the country, of course, we didn't speak the language. We were actually going through what we call language and cultural um, acquisition training. And so we were learning 
What is this new culture we're planning on living in for a long time? What is the language? How do we speak it? How do we communicate? And so we were living in a different city than we had planned on living in permanently. So we chose, because it was our first step into the country, to actually live in a more what they call expat community or foreign, mainly foreigners live in these communities inside of these foreign countries. And that's where consular people live, embassy people, you know, people that work for other missions and nonprofit humanitarian organizations. And so what traffickers had done is they knew these are neighborhoods, uh, we call them villages because that's what they call them there, but these neighborhoods are the places we're going to be able to find children from all over the world in one compact area. And little did we know that these people have been trolling our neighborhoods for a very long time. And over there, it's much like it was back, I don't know, 40 or 50 years ago, even 20 or 30 years ago, where, you know, we just went out as kids and riding our bikes in, in the neighborhood all afternoon and evening and nobody thought anything about it. And so it's still very much like that overseas. And so our daughter and some other missionary children were riding their bikes like they did every day and around the park, down the street. And they were approached by a, uh, a vehicle with, that had a female passenger who was in the back seat and then a, a male driver. And they, my little girl's best friend, who was eight years old at the time, was a um, black child. And obviously my daughter, she's white blonde hair, blue eyes. And so they saw their chance. They got two different ethnic skins, which is exotic in that part of the country because they're all Asian. And so they were looking for the different ethnicities to kidnap and then throw into these brothels that they had created there in the country. And so at that time, they got the one little girl in and they went to put my daughter in the car and she began to kick and scream and do all the things we had taught her some self um, protection things. And so she began to use those and bite, kick, scream, yell. And it got enough attention that in the process, when they tried to take off, they had not quite got the door shut. And my daughter jumped out and then began to pull her other friend as the car was moving. And they stopped the car. She got her other friend out. They were laying on the side of the road and people were beginning to run and gather at the time. And so they took off. Wow. Um, we didn't know other than we thought it was just kidnapping. And um, so then at that time, we proceeded to call the local security that we had in our neighborhood and then in turn call the police. Obviously, we couldn't communicate yet in the language, so we needed some help. And we told them all that we knew, and we didn't think twice about it other than, oh, my gosh, we have to protect our children. And it was two days later that those same police officers came back with a translator to our home and said, we need to tell you what was going on. We need more information. If you can give it to us about what you saw, what you heard. Um, because my husband heard the commotion and began to chase and run after the car down the road. You don't ever know what you know until somebody right. asks you the right questions. And right. so they were interviewing us again. And it was during that time that they divulged to us that this group was a large group. It was not just a singular two people and that they were going around and trying to find expat foreign children there in the area and that, that their intention was to traffic and sell them. And that's when the human trafficking word was brought into our attention. And wow. at that time it began to be just terrifying. What do we do and how do we do this? And, um, and that's where, you know, I kind of said a few minutes ago, it just started making us do research and understanding what is this thing. And, and that's when we began to see, no, there's, there's not anybody that can even help our daughter with the trauma that she's experienced right. because nobody's really talking about this. But those traffickers had already taken 19 children and our two girls, these two girls would have been um, number 20 and 21. And they only recovered about eight of those children of the 19. And so um, that's when we said, this can't happen to other people's kids either. Mm -hmm. And we said, we're going to fight for these kids, whether we're in Asia or wherever we are in the world. And so that was 2009. And what did your 
kids say at the time? Because I'm sure conversations started surrounding, you know, between you and your husband, but then your kids had to be educated even further. I mean, right. it sounds like you did educate your kids enough to make a commotion, which I have too, but you know, sometimes right. they freeze. So, I mean, for a nine-year-old yeah. yeah. to, to actually remember what am I supposed to be doing at this moment in time is crazy. But, right. you know, then what were some of the conversations that you had with your family before this grew into what it is, Rescue One Global? Well, we really didn't have a lot of conversations with our children for about another year or so because that was during our own research and understanding and education phase. And really, we didn't want to scare our children and we didn't have enough education ourselves to know what to say. Now, if, obviously, if this happened today to one of my other children, I would know exactly what to tell them and how to teach them. But really, we were just as numb and dumb to the topic as a lot of people are when they first encounter the, the human trafficking. And that's really what sparked our interest to jump into this field was that there really wasn't pioneers in this field. There was not books written on how to do humanitarian work when it comes to human trafficking. There was not organizations that had existed for long periods of time that had best practices out there in the world. And we said, somebody's got to stand up and say that this is a problem and somebody has to stand up and wake in the church and somebody has to raise some, you know, voices to this. And so that's really what happened over the next two years. And so we did teach our children indirectly what to do and how to keep themselves safe. And the beginning, obviously, when we started Rescue One officially and began to go speak in places that they heard us speak to those churches and those civic groups and those people. And they would get in the car and we would ask, they would ask questions and, and more. But we really tried not to tell our daughter what could have happened to her because we right. didn't want to incite fear in her because it didn't happen to her. But Um, Just that's what caused us to jump into it. Let me just give you a few statistics. And I use that term very loosely. Mm -hmm. So bear with me because really the world of human trafficking is not a new thing. The world of anti-trafficking is a very new thing Mm -hmm. in the sense of we didn't really document things that have been going on. The, um, the tip report, the trafficking in persons report that is put out globally for every country and NATO actually um, rates every country based on how they're fighting human trafficking. So the statistics that we have out there, in my opinion, I call them best guesstimates because we've only been documenting this now for a little less than a decade, wow. which is not a lot of research and time to really put numbers out there. But it's estimated by the ILO, for instance, which is the um, International Labor Organization, that there are over 45 million people enslaved in human trafficking today as you and I sit here on this wow. on this call. And that's a lot of people. It's also estimated that every two minutes, another child goes into human trafficking. Oh my gosh. Um, I live in the state of Tennessee, for instance, um, born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. My dad was a pastor and opened a Christian school here in the area. And so I live in a very close knit Southern community and some people call it the Bible belt. So like, it's a good place to live. But yet, even in my own state, in my own city, um, the estimation is that we have 700 to 900 children, according to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, that runs away inside of our state every month. Wow. If you were to overlay that statistic with a statistic from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, mm-hmm. or NCMEC, they say that one out of every six children who runs away from home ends up in human trafficking within 72 hours of running away from home. So if you just want to bring it from the global scale down to my small city in Nashville, that means that if I, we have a, if we have 600 to 900 runaways 
plus the one in six ends up in trafficking. That means that we have anywhere from 96 to 125 new children end up in human trafficking every month in the state of Tennessee. That's my own backyard. That's my own home. So I'm, I'm, and I'm sure that we could overlay numbers like that in every one of your states and Mm -hmm. every one of your cities come up with very similar statistics. Tennessee is actually the number one state out of all 50 states that is fighting and combating human trafficking from a governmental all the way down to a community site. And so I feel that if I live in a state that's supposed to be number one and I see how far we've yet to come, that's a scary, scary reality for me. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with just awareness and like opening your eyes. That's correct. Learning, you know, of these statistics, but then also, you know, the signs. You had given us some great signs of just to be aware of in something as simple as an everyday grocery store. I mean, airports were also a thing that you talked about, but simple things like the grocery store. Yeah. So what are some of the signs? Human trafficking takes on two major forms labor trafficking and sex trafficking. So when we talk about human trafficking statistics, we're not solely talking about sex trafficking, which is what Rescue One focuses most of its efforts into. Um, I will say that we had the privilege of taking care of several labor traffic victims that were um, rescued during a raid here in Tennessee during the NFL draft raids that were happening for human trafficking. So we've taken care of labor trafficking victims now as well. And so I don't want to discredit that. The other thing that I don't want to discredit is most people think that human trafficking is women. They think that it's a girl. And that's about 70% is female and about 30% is male inside of this world. So if you hear me say she more than that, that's probably why. But I just want to clarify that. So signs that you're um, seeing out there in public, for instance, if you're in a school or maybe you're in a youth group or some setting like that where you're caring for youth or children, their demeanor may change. It's going to be the same signs as if someone was abused by someone, possibly. Maybe their grades go down. Maybe they're less talkative. They're less, you know, engaged in the community. Um, maybe they're they're hiding um, bruises and, and things on their body. Because the reason I start with that one is because I want people to understand human trafficking is not someone locked up in a basement chained to a floor somewhere. Mm-hmm. That is not the way human trafficking. These kids still go to school every day. They still come to our youth groups all the time. They still engage in your, your ball groups, like your sports groups that your kids are and youth activities that your kids are involved in in the community. And if the average age of entry into the sex industry, for instance, in the U.S. is 13, again, we're not talking about an adult-initiated problem. We're talking about something that happens to our children, mine, and your children who are that age. Um, and again, technology uh, breeds into that. But these, so in the signs that you begin to see some ba- behavior changes in a child um, that are not common, speak up, say something. It may not be trafficking, but it, there's a reason why that child is going through that digression inside of their world. And I've talked to numbers of girls and numbers of boys who will tell me, yeah, my coach didn't see it, my teachers didn't see it, my friend's parents didn't see it. And it was all because somebody, they did see it actually. And they come back later and say, well, we did see it. We just were afraid to say something. Wow. And so that's the first thing with children. If you're just in public and you see John and Jane Doe public out there and you're in the grocery store, people, traffickers usually are very controlling. So um, we have a lot of information out there, for instance, about domestic violence and what abusers look like and the the things that they act like, and that's exactly what it's going to look like for um, our traffic victims. So they're talking for them. They look shameful, so they won't look up at you, and they won't make eye contact with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually if they're they're asked for some type of documentation, whether it's their ID or uh, forms of payment, they don't have those. They have to ask the trafficker in order to make those exchanges. 
usually you ask them a question, but then he answers for them per se and things like that. So those are some really good indicators. Also, if you ever see a child, any person that you believe is under the age of 18, soliciting or, or engage in any kind of sex act with um, the out in the public, most states now have a law that that child is not old enough to engage in a commercial sex act, which is human trafficking. So you hear it called child prostitution, which I believe that those words should never be put together. Mm-hmm. But a child cannot agree to engage in a sex act. So if you see any form of that, whether that's on social media, you'll see pictures that maybe your kids or things that your kids will say, um, a child is not old enough to make the decision to engage in sex or commercial value. The other thing with that is that commercial value does not mean the almighty dollar has to be exchanged in order for that act. It could simply mean that you bought the child a hamburger in exchange for that sexual act. That begins to be human trafficking based on the federal law. If you are traveling around and you see things like tattoo parlors or massage parlors or nail nail salons, and they have exorbitant amounts of security measures that they have. They have cameras and they Mm -hmm. have barbed wire or they have um, things covering your windows. There's usually things happening. They have a good uh, license on the front part of their building, but they have illicit things that are going on behind the scenes. Signs of physical abuse. There's all kinds of things. Pay very little for their work. We have labor laws, for instance, in America that says a person can't work more than 40 hours a week until they start getting overtime. And and then there's even laws on that. So if you see the same person working seven days a week at your local shop, Mm -hmm. like international food markets or restaurants, for instance, that have international foods like Chinese food or, you know, Thai food or Korean food or um, Hispanic food or things like that, a lot of labor trafficking will happen on the forefront there, but also sex trafficking is happening underlying um, inside of those wow. those buildings and, and businesses as well. If you do see something, how do you approach them? Because you have to do it very carefully. And I did see something where it was in the medical field where I think it was you were doing like a urine test. And in that particular place where you got your cup, they had a red marker and a black marker, yes. right? And I just you know, saw that. Yeah. I just saw that. So it was interesting. And, and they basically created a safe space so that people can kind of report if they needed help in a private area. So if you do see right. something, what would be your best suggestion of, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is it, or maybe I should just check it out. What would you say to, I would say like the layman or somebody who has yeah. never done this before, how would you approach that if you have this feeling that this is what you're seeing? The, the best the best option, because you and I and probably your listeners are all over the country, the best option is for them to call the human trafficking hotline. Okay. And th- we have a national human trafficking hotline, and we'll give you that number, and you guys can use it. But that they will actually begin to ask you the questions that you may not know that you saw, and they will kind of do the if this, then that questions. And they'll pull information out of you and they'll document it and they'll tell you um, what that happens when you call that hotline is, for instance, me in Nashville, Tennessee, they're going to automatically, they're going to take the information if they think it's credible or something that they need to react on. They're going to then call the local people here in Nashville um, who they know deal with human trafficking and they will make them aware. And then that person probably then will try to contact that person back. So there's a good system, no matter where you are in the nation, to use that as the easiest platform in order to call and, you know, to make that that thing. That's the first thing. Um, Also, if if you see somebody that's in danger, you always can call 911. 
and sure. you can make a report there. Or you can call your local police. I will say that not all areas of our country are educated even when it comes to our police forces either. So they don't always know what they're looking at and they don't always know what to do um, as well. So but you wouldn't re- the- really recommend to like try to pass a note or walk up or you know what I mean? It's all situational. So maybe if you're in somewhere where you see something that is odd, um, I would say don't ever approach the person in front of the person who you think is the perpetrator mm-hmm. because if that person does acknowledge you and reaches out for help, yet they don't, you can't get them out that moment. Right. Usually when they leave, whatever the setting is, it's going to be really bad for them. Yeah. They're going to get beaten because they communicated with you. And so that person is fearful of basically them getting caught. So I don't ever encourage people to approach people like that. But in a bathroom, the, the, the one main thing is we try to get people that own restaurants, that own businesses, um, that own hotels. We did, we talked to a lot of hotels and, and places like that. The one and only place most traffic victims are ever allowed to be alone is in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And so that's why those signs like what you're talking about is so vital, mm-hmm. gives them a, a chance to, to tell somebody that they're, they're in need of help um, as well. And so us that are just John and Jane Doe citizens that don't have a lot of understanding and whatever, if your gut tells you something's wrong, then you should act on your gut. But, you know, whether that's calling your local police or that's calling the national hotline, those are the two first line of defense that I would recommend to anybody. Okay, that's awesome. Um, and, and you're going to want to be able to give them information like I'm at this location, at this road, at this time. This is a vehicle. This is the make, the model. This is what she looked like, what she was wearing, what he was wearing. As much detail as you can. Um, and why you feel suspicious. Like, what is it your gut's telling you? Name those things like he was controlling her. He wasn't letting her talk for herself. Um, she was trying to order food and, and, you know, he said no. And just the different things like yeah. that. So. No eye contact, things like that. Yeah. 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 Yep. That's super helpful. Now, I know you've rescued many, many girls and boys, but are they all happy to go with you? And are there, and they're just, I mean, I know it's not necessarily always a happy ending. I mean, are there people that try to escape? Are there people that, you know, in their mindset, they're just not there yet, even though that you have rescued them. So, so talk about that because I know it's not just about the rescue with you and uh, with rescue one global, because that's not just what you do as you rescue. You do more than that. So talk a little bit more and then lead into what we do prevent rescue and restore. But to answer your question, that's a really hard, there's no black and white answer to your question because based on the amount of trauma, the length of time they had been involved in this kind of compound complex trauma, they all have their own issues. So all of those factors play into whether or not they're ready for healing. And what we try to get people to understand is that human trafficking is not taken. So it's not a kidnapping and then you get them back in a 48 hours or 72 hours and, you know, and then you deal with it. Usually trafficking has happened because of manipulation. And so let me step back a minute and say, those of you that are listening to this, if you have children around the age of, of 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, you guys have got to pay attention to their social media. Your kids are going to have not only social media that you know about, but they're going to have hidden social media. There's even apps on your phones that can cover up your other social media that you don't want mom and dad to know about, such as a calculator app that looks mm-hmm. like a calculator, functions like a calculator, but there's apps underneath it if you put the right code in. And, and so 
traffickers know this too, and they're trolling all of the social media sites, um, all all of your Snapchats, and your even your Tinder, and, and even your dating sites. They're trolling all of those, looking for vulnerable people to engage with. And talking with traffickers, they tell you these things. This is not just a theory that we have. And so when they're on those, then they begin to get them engaged, and they begin to brainwash them. And our children's minds, their brains, let me just step into the psychology world for a minute. Children's brains are not yet fully developed and able to make complete cognitive decisions about logical decisions until they're almost 25 years old. Now that, I mean, yes, we're letting them vote at 18. Yes, we're letting them go to war at 18. Yes, we're letting them drink at 21. I know all those things. But I'm telling you that a person's brain is not fully developed until the age of 25. And so what we deal with with children who are under the age of 25 or adults, young adults and children under the age of 25 is we're dealing with now a not fully developed brain that has been traumatized. And so the mind manipulation, most people have heard of the term Stockholm syndrome, for instance. Well, you can take uh, Elizabeth Smart, for instance. Most people have heard about that story out in Utah where she was taken from her bedroom and, you know, she was there for nine months. But if you ever talk to her or hear her story directly, which uh, I've been able to have the privilege to work with her and her dad directly, she'll tell you that even after she was rescued, she all of a sudden had this sympathetic um, compassionate care back for her captor mm. because of the brainwashing and the trauma that she had experienced in her brain. Because what happened is, is the logical side of your brain shuts off and you begin to live only in your experiential side of your brain. Mm. Well, when your logic shuts off, for instance, Elizabeth Smart, she'll tell you, my experience said, I'm having high trauma. All these bad things are happening to me, but this man is protecting me. This man is feeding me and he's mm. keeping me quote unquote safe. So now that begins that whole mindset of this guy really wants to take care of me. So you talk about all these children who have dysfunctional homes or they have vulnerabilities in their lives. And now this guy says he loves them and he wants to take care of them. And he wants to, you know, it's, it's a Romeo pimp kind of a thing or Romeo trafficker. And all we want to do as people is be loved anyway. Like we're created as humans to want to be loved, want to feel beautiful, want to have wanted. So they've done all of that. So I have to preface with that because, when I tell you that most people who come into our safe house programs end up running away at one point in time, wow. that shocks people. It blows people's mind. Why? You love them and you keep them safe and you're giving them food and they have like these most beautiful bedrooms. Absolutely all of those things are true. But they run because for the first time in their life, one of the things that they're experiencing is love with no strings attached. Mm. Everything in life always cost us something. That's what they've been taught. Even if they didn't weren't taught that by verbiage, they were taught that by actions mm-hmm. and experience. Everything costs something. And so they're in our, our care. And for us, we're a faith-based organization and we believe that Jesus brings that hope to them that is going to really change. So they're experiencing this unconditional love for the first time. And that actually scares the heck out of them more than sometimes going back on the street because wow. there they knew what they had to do every day yep. to get what they needed. And so with us, they don't know what they have to do tomorrow all the time because this is all unfamiliar territory. Some girls have never run a a, a washing machine. Some girls have never helped cook a meal. So all these new things we're introducing to them um, are are scary. Yeah, they're really scary. And what? So you do prevent, rescue, and restore. So what Correct. do you do once they get to, to your facility that you have, and how long are they able to stay there? 
So our, we have an intake process and we have an, an amazing clinical operations director. She's a licensed clinical therapist and she does all of our intakes for us. Um, so when we get a referral, whether that's through a phone call, whether that's um, or just a, a citizen or a parent or a grandparent calls us, we run it through a series of questions. We want to make sure that we could actually care for this child appropriately. Some of these children need to be in a more highly um, lockdown type facility um, because they're an endanger to themselves. Um, some children and girls and women that we've dealt with um, have more um, psychological needs than we are able to handle. And so th- we have a process by which we intake them. And, and then sometimes we have to do some legal paperwork in order to get them to be able to be in our care and our custody. But we have a rescue team who's made up of private investigators um, here locally in Tennessee. And we have a team of about uh, five or six of those guys, and they will work really hard to also help us securely get people across the country um, into our facility if we need that, or sometimes just our advocates are able to manage that on their own. And so we go pick them up, we drive them um, or fly them to our safe house facility, which is located here in Tennessee, and then we just start loving on them. We give them a time of what we call calm and rest. We want them to just get acclimated to their situation. But then we begin to offer them things like um, mental health counseling um, and therapy. We offer them education. Uh, the girls, you know, by law, we're required to, they're to, required to be in school somewhere. And a lot of these girls have never had formal education because they've been out on the streets for quite a bit of time or they run away so many times they've not ever stayed in one school. And so we have an educational program that we um, are able to offer them or a GED program. We also offer life skills. When you've been on the streets, you don't actually have normal social skills. And so we have to think that way and we have to reintegrate um, with that. And I mean, down to, like I said earlier, just running a washing machine sometimes is a foreign concept because I've many girls that have told me like, oh, well, I just washed my clothes in the sink and hung them up over the shower curtain kind of a thing most of my life. Mm-hmm. And so that's a real sad reality for us. The other thing that we have to deal with, I would say nine out of 10 times is that most of our girls have some form of chemical addiction, such as alcohol or drugs. Um, in their system. And some people think, oh, well, they're just drug addicts. So really they're not traffic victims. They're just drug addicts out there prostituting themselves to get their fix. No, that's not true. The truth is, is that what I've had girls look at me, a lot of them and say is who wants to do what I had to do every day, every night sober. Mm -hmm. And so in order to cope, in order to be numb enough to see 10 to 20 clients a night, in order to make that 500 to $1,500 a night quota that they have to make, selling their own bodies, what we call paid rape, they had to numb themselves with something. I mean, you and I would do the same thing. Um, if you have a, if you have a pain, you go take a Tylenol, right? You've got a headache, you go take a Tylenol. So their self coping mechanisms was some type of drugs. And for instance, whether that's cocaine or heroin. So we have to deal with addictions um, that they have as well. And um, those are hard to overcome. A lot of things are really, really hard to overcome on top of the compound complex trauma that trafficking brings in their life. Hey 
everybody. This is Adrian from Feminist Hot Dog, and I want you to join me and my awesome guests as we put the fun in feminism. It's true. On Feminist Hot Dog, we explore all the ways feminism makes the world a better place, no matter who you are. So come hang out on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Mountain on NOCO FM. And don't forget, love yourself and love your buns. See you on Wednesday. Hi there, my name is Kevcat, and I am the host of NoCo Gadio, airing Fridays at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a member of our Patreon. Your support is vital to keeping us on air and growing this awesome community. Find out more at noco.fm. A brief warning to our listeners. The following episode contains discussion of human trafficking. Listener discretion is advised. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking, are many of them even reunited or given the choice to reunite with their families? Or is it something that like, I don't even know the statistics on that if they really want to go back. I mean, obviously you have the resources that they need at the time, but um, do families kind of get reintroduced and, and involved again? So that's a variation. Um, for some people, yes. For some people, no. Um, some people's parents and moms and dads were their actual perpetrators. They were the traffickers. They were the one that was selling them for their own drugs or their own um, rent money or whatever the, the case may be. A lot of times, uh, a lot of these kids have come up through the foster care system because it's stated that of trafficking victims, seven out of ten victims that are traffic victims have had a touch inside the foster care system. And so the reintegration with families is our ultimate goal. But what we also know is that we may have to find a new family for them mm-hmm. um, in order for them to have that eventually. But you, you said a really a good word that I want to talk about for just a second. You, you said the word choice. Choice is something that was taken from them the moment they began to be a slave in the world of human trafficking. Everything about their life, even though they thought they were making choices, mm-hmm. the traffickers manipulate to make them feel like they're making these choices on their own. In reality, someone else is making every choice for them. So choice is something that we very deeply try to give back to them um, from the moment they come in our care, from the moment we even offer them the first service on the street somewhere or at a uh, local police precinct. The first thing we want to do is offer them choice. And we actually say, we're not your only choice. We are not your only option for rehabilitation and healing. There are these other options because we want to immediately give them choice. Um, Where would you like to eat? Their very first thing they want to eat. We give them options here. These are three restaurants or these are three things we can offer you. Which would you like? Because choice is a thing that was stolen from them. And we want to give that back to them immediately. Let's shift a little. Um, and, and that's okay. all such great information, you know, but I want to also highlight some of the things that Rescue One Global is doing. So I know there was a recent documentary that was released just about a week or so ago. Um, tell me a little bit more right. about that, that you guys were part of the film. And and what is that? What is that doing? And where can people if, if they missed it? Because I know there was only showing at a few theaters. Mm-hmm. Where is right. it available for people to find if they want to learn more about human trafficking as well as Rescue One Global? 
So the documentary was called Blind Eyes Open. And since we started our conversation here today, we've talked about the fact that awareness is the key to both prevention and rescue and restoration. And so we all have to be aware. This documentary started being filmed back in 2015. So it's not something that was done just recently. And we were joking the other night that a lot has changed since 2015 and 16, even in our own lives um, here at Rescue One. But we were one of several dozen organizations and groups that were kind of featured inside of this film. And it comes from a Christian faith-based perspective, too, that um, God put us in this world for a reason. And we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus on the earth. And the reality is, is that we can't turn a blind eye to it. We can't, we need to be the good Samaritan and we need to go out and we need to be Jesus with skin on to all these people that um, are in need. And so it first of all starts off where it just talks about the realities. It, it, it also takes you through the lives of six survivors and they give their full stories um, on this film. Um, and two of the six survivors are those that have had direct connection with us here at Rescue One. And so getting to hear from a firsthand perspective is a really, really great, phenomenal thing. And then also to hear from organizations from literally coast to coast. And we all have the same message and we all have the same information that we're putting out there. It was a great experience for us. They spent three days here in Nashville filming a couple of years ago with us. And uh, my husband and I are both featured and then some of our volunteers are featured in the film. And it's going to be coming out. It was only one night. Um, you said a few theaters, but it was in 800, over 800 theaters across the nation wow. on Thursday evening. And um, it was only one showing one night. Um, and then it's going to be coming out on DVD. And what's going to come with it also is a kind of a notebook or a workbook mm-hmm. where you could sit down with either your ladies group or your church group or some other groups and be able to, you know, have conversations around the topic uh, of that as well. Wow. That's and so, amazing. That's awesome. Um, Oh, and it's going to be, it's a, for a great experience. And so, um, like I said, we had a privilege of being a part of that and all of the organizations, we actually know most all of them firsthand and they all have to do phenomenal work across our nation. And so we encourage anybody that can get their hands on that. You can, I think you can go to just blindeyesopen.com right now and sign up for whenever they'll, they'll send you a message when the DVD comes out. So. Okay, got it. So what yeah. about some other types of maybe fundraisers or opportunities? I know that your your group that your kind of executive team or whatever, you know, is trying to get together some different opportunities and fundraisers that people can get involved in, whether they're in Tennessee or not, you know, what are some right. of the things that might be upcoming for, for you folks to try to raise awareness well, and raise funds to help you continue what you're doing? Something, though, that some of your your listeners might be really, they might ask themselves this question, especially when it comes to, like, donating or fundraising for an organization. They'll ask you the question or they'll ask me the question, you're in Nashville, Tennessee, what does that have to do with me? Mm. Like, how how is my, I live in Denver, Colorado, how me helping you is really going to help me and my community, per se. And so I just want to preface that with saying that most of the girls and women and, and men that we've ever cared for are come to us from outside of Tennessee. I would say 85% have come from outside of Tennessee. That's because there's only estimated 140 organizations across the nation that have beds um, available. And so we calculated that out. If the average beds available are only six to eight per organization, then you can do the math there and you don't have but more than a couple thousand beds available for our entire country. Right. So that's why it affects you. 
because your kid needs help, you would want somebody like us to be able to, to be available and ready. And we actually have the facilities um, to do so. But our biggest thing is just been keeping ourselves funded enough to keep food on the table and keep the lights on and keep enough staff to take care of um, all of these beautiful little children and women and men that we get to take care of. So with that said, our number one thing that we point people to is we have a campaign called One of a Thousand. And it doesn't sound like a hard deal, but if we just have a thousand people giving an average of $50 a month, it would underwrite all of our operations that we needed, baseline operations. And that could do astronomically big things for us as at Rescue One to just not have to worry about our day in and day out needs, um, to then be able to focus on expanding and building more safe houses and projects like that so that we're not um, just having to worry about just the daily needs. Does that make sense? Yes, Absolutely. And so we always have an annual gala. The other thing that we're able to do is if any of your listeners said, hey, I want you to connect in my community, we can come out and do seminars and and educational talks and conversations um, ourselves in your, like, come fly or drive to your community or, uh, or connect you with organizations that are in your area that we already know about that are um, good and already kind of embedded in, inside of our processes as well. There's always opportunities. And if you follow us on our Facebook page, we literally give you up to date day by day, sometimes moment by moment. We'll, we'll for instance, tell you we're in the middle of a rescue, so pray for us. Um, we'll talk to you about we have an Amazon wish list that goes all the time and we need some things on our Amazon wish list or we're running low on toilet paper. You guys want to send some toilet paper our way, you know, so we have simple things for everyday people to get involved with as well as people who want to really delve in heavily and, and help us financially on a a larger scale. And so we can, if they'll contact you or contact us, we can get them connected with the right people on our team to make all of those things happen. Okay. And most of it is um, found on your website, which I will list in the show notes. Do you still have your network for good if people want to just donate financially? Yeah. Yeah. All of our, actually all of our online system on our website runs through network for good. Okay, awesome. And then, you know, I was yeah. thinking about the Amazon wish list. So even if you had supplies and you needed to send it to a place, you have a secure place that's sent that's not the actual home, obviously, correct? Just for people who are wondering. That's correct. Yeah, okay. That's right. correct, yeah. And so, for instance, if our Amazon wish list, if you go there and you buy a jumbo pack of toilet paper on the Amazon wish list, it sends it to our um, secured location, our okay. secure mailbox. And then they let us know that there's something there for us to pick up. Perfect. Okay. You know, share, if you if you can, share with us some of, maybe some of your favorite stories that you've experienced. Just, you know, starting in, what, 2009, you said, around? Just kind of right. starting with your research and everything. You know, what were some of the stories that you can think back thinking, my gosh, you know, we weren't going to walk down this path. Like, this wasn't even on our radar, like you said. But right. if we didn't this would have never happened or, you know, this, we were able to work with this or this person or this organization, or, you know, what are some of the stories that you can share that you know and, and are just given confirmation that this is where you need to be right now? Well, now you're kind of meddling because this is where I get emotional (laughs) and, you know, I can give you all the facts and be pretty, pretty blunt with most of those. But when I start having to talk about the faces that I get to see every day, that's where I get emotional in. But truly, that's what it's about. Actually, our name, Rescue One, came from that fact. 
um, we began to hear the numbers in the millions. And for instance, when we first started at 10 or 11 years ago, talking about this and hearing about it in the world, the number was only 21 million people enslaved oh in the world gosh, during that wow. time. And that's still a large number. And now it's at 45. And the truth is that we haven't had that much of an increase. What we've had is awareness. And so it's just that there, so if we know that we're only 10 years into discovery and we're already, we've already doubled our number in 10 years, what is it if we really had great awareness about this, like we do domestic violence or like we do other crimes in the world. And so, um, there's so, oh, I don't even know where to start, but in Thailand, um, in the Philippines, we also, we haven't mentioned that, but we also have homes in both of those countries. And um, in any given day, whether it's in our prevention program or in our restoration uh, recovery program, we have over 200 women and children that are in those programs internationally as well. And this is hard when, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you right now and we're literally just a couple hours after just recovering a 13 year old girl who had run away from our home twice in the six week period, she'd been in our safe home. And so I've had a hard weekend and a lot of emotion um, plugged into that long late night um, out in the middle of the night with Homeland security and other place or other people. And it's, it's really not about the millions mm -hmm. because Natalie, you and I together, and even if we had your entire listening audience out there searching for kids, we never will be able to, rescue our way out of this problem. We'll never be able to rescue millions of kids. But what we can is that one that God puts in front of our plate and our face or puts in our path, we can make a difference for that one. And so when I have hard weekends like this and they're, you know, fighting us every way and they don't even know that they're fighting us and that we have something good for them. You know, it's like your kids when you want them, you know, what's best for them, but you can't get them to see that, you know? And, um, so, when I when I look into these faces like this, like I did this weekend and, and like we have done so many times, they remind me, they remind me that their life was worth all the nights that we did, didn't go our way and we didn't recover the person that we wanted to recover and we didn't, be, weren't, we weren't able to make the rescue. But I look at them and I look at one girl who we rescued in 2015 and now she's married and has two children and she looks at me and she says, only because you showed up one night, like you said, yes. And this is how my life is different because you said yes. And so when I'm down and I'm ready to quit and I'm ready to throw in the towel, which is at least once a week, um, I get those faces back that says, no, if you spent all this money and you spent all this time, I told you it was about the one. It was about rescuing one not about millions. It was about one. And I think that our world would be a better place mm -hmm. if we all took that perspective of there is a need around every corner, around everywhere. And you don't have to jump in the fight of human trafficking to change the world for the good. You just have to step out of your comfort zone for a moment. Be inconvenienced for a moment for one. And for that one, you never know who that one will end up being in life. Um, you never know who that one will grow up to be. And, you know, they may be the next world changer and you are the one that stepped in and said yes in that moment. And you put your own self aside for a moment and said, okay, I'm here. What can I do to help this person? And so instead of giving you a real specific story, because that's really what I have to always come back to is she's worth it. He's worth it. Again, like I've said so many times, my faith is what drives me. And so I believe that a God came and rescued me from all the bad things and, and horrible things that could have been at made up of my life 
And then why would I not give up my life, a small part of my life to rescue one more and then one more after that. And then one more after that. And that's how I keep going every day when it gets really, really hard and really emotional and really daunting and scary. And um, I want to throw the towel in. It's about the one. Oh, I love that. You know, you are so, so darn special. And, you know, I love that you stepped into this and have such a passion because your passion alone will inspire, I think, so many people to jump on board, whether they knew it or not, um, in different ways that they can. It doesn't have to be to the extent that you and Daniel are, but also, you know, whatever they can do to help. Um, you know, it's, it's again, all about awareness. And I love, I love that. And, And I love that advice about just, I wrote it down. I said, it's about rescuing one, like that one person is one that makes it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is there anything else that you would um, like to share that we maybe didn't cover, you know, with rescue one? I just want to make sure that everything, you know, um, that we can share about what you do, uh, is out there. Well, I think the biggest thing is just, um, our biggest need is for a platform in order to speak in more places and have the opportunity to share and raise awareness in more places. Um, raising awareness obviously then gives us a platform to be who we need to be for these, these ones, these individuals who are out there. So I think if my biggest takeaway, if I could ask your audience to do one thing, it's help us get a platform, whether that's in your area or um, whether that's on social media or on your podcast or your, your Facebook live or whatever it is, give us a platform in order to share the awareness that's out there because the more people that are aware, the less likely you're vulnerable, the less likely your children are vulnerable. And that's what we can do. We, we aren't going to, it's set out there many, many times. We're not going to rescue and restore our way out of this problem. We actually, something we didn't even talk about today, but we have to talk about the prevention side. We have to deal with the demand side of the issue. If we don't have any buyers, if you don't have people that are wanting children for sex, then you don't have children that are being sold for sex. And so that's a whole nother probably conversation for another day. But the demand side of pornography and sexual addiction drives this industry. And we need to step up and we need to have conversations and we need to good for some states that are calling pornography now a health risk. Um, That's the truth. And that's a a real statement. It just needs to be addressed. And if we're going to have addiction centers for drugs and alcohol, we need addiction centers for sexual addiction because it sets the same chemicals off in the brain. And so, again, that's a whole conversation for another time. But that's why Rescue One exists, because we just need to talk about it. We need to talk about it openly. And don't be afraid to talk about things with your children. Open Mm -hmm. the platform of open communication with your children so that if someone's doing something to them, if they feel manipulated or used or hurt, abused, by someone, they feel the freedom to tell you whether you're their teacher or their coach or their school, te- uh, their Sunday school teacher or, or youth worker or parent or aunt or uncle. We all have those kids in our lives. And why is it that so many girls can be abused and yet nobody, they're not able to talk to anybody about right. it or they talk to somebody and nobody knows what to say. So they just brush it under the rug and hope they didn't hear it. And so that's what I think I would want your listeners to take out of it is that even though this topic is about human trafficking specifically, it really has more implications in just the way that we take care of the kids in our world. Um, Because if we don't have a lot of vulnerable children and we don't have the sexual addiction and Mm -hmm. pornography issue, then we really don't have children who are being sold trafficking any longer. Thank you so much for tuning in to Connecting a Better World and thank you, NOCO FM, for supporting this show. 
If you haven't heard, NOCO FM is dedicated to bring diverse voices and spotlighting a unique culture to Fort Collins and beyond. For more information, please visit www.noco.fm. If you connected to something in this episode, we would love to hear from you. Our contact info will be listed in the show notes, as well as you can reach us on our social media channels. Please feel free to share our podcast with your friends and loved ones. For more shows, please tune in to noco.fm online. This has been a production of NOCO FM.